Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. Both of us, like the rest of the world, are still reeling from Monday's news about the fire that caused significant damage to the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. Thanks to firefighters and civilians, a human chain was formed and that saved a number of priceless relics from destruction. Tonight, we begin a four-part discussion of Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Wesley Cook, who is also known as Mamiya Abu-Jamal. Tonight, we'll talk about the social climate of the 1960s and 70s, which led to the founding of a radical group called MOVE in Philadelphia, and MOVE's 1978 clash with Philadelphia police, which set the stage for the events of December 9th, 1981. Then we'll learn more about Officer Daniel Faulkner and Mumia Abu-Jamal. And finally, we'll talk about the murder of Officer Faulkner. As always, we are a live show and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> Expanding upon your opinion, yesterday I saw that. Uh, I remember I saw that uh, Facebook. I, I'm at work, so I don't get news unless it come comes across my Facebook as my local news station went live, and then it'll have a little mm-hmm. blurb about what they're talking about. And I saw that, and I was like, wait. I uh, I think I know what they're talking about, and then I saw the cathedral, and I was like, "Oh, Dagum, yeah, yeah, that's a pretty iconic. Uh, that's a pretty iconic piece of uh, architecture in the world. So definitely a big loss, at least for the architecture world, as well as you know, uh, the cathedral. Well, I, uh, the... go ahead. I think I think the structure. Uh, the outer structure is stone. Mm-hmm. What burned was the inner structure, which is wooden. Oh, okay. And um, yeah, the the cathedral, the construction started in eleven forty, in the eleven forties, which is the twelfth century, mm-hmm. and then completed in the thirteen hundreds, which is a fourteenth century, and it's been around. 
Um, uh, ironically, though, it's not, as I recall, uh, it's not where French kings were corn, uh, were crowned. That was in really? Milan. Mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah, they're going to rebuild it, and they can rebuild the in the interior structure. Uh, a lot of artwork and relics were saved, which included uh, the crown of thorns, and I believe mm-hmm. a piece of the true cross, and then a lot of priceless artwork. One of the rose uh, stained glass rose windows is also still intact. So. I think Good. the challenge is going to be that the craftsmen's, craftsmen and artisans mm-hmm. to do the work to restore it as it was built in the Middle Ages right. doesn't exist. Try to keep it true to the original structure. I'm sure they probably won't build it out of wood this time, though. Uh, well, hopefully when they rebuild it, they will put in fire suppression. Yeah, equipment. or they'll have at least something that won't allow uh, it to go Now, be, before anybody says anything or thinks that I'm being critical, you can't put fire suppression equipment in a building that old unless you tear it apart. And they've mm-hmm. done restoration and renovation work over the centuries. The the spire that fell was from the 19th century, and it was probably to replace an an earlier spire. So most of the structure is intact, but it is uh, it's been a central place of worship for the the folks in Paris for centuries. Absolutely, Um, and that's the great part, you you know. Some yeah. of these buildings, some some things happen to these buildings that you, and then all of a sudden they're gone, and you're like, wow. Yeah, but you remember the the big fire in Memphis, the Methodist, I think it was the Methodist Church. It was uh, uh, at Poplar, and I think Second. I believe burned I down to the that. ground. Mm-hmm. Well, you're out in Little Rock, so I lived in Memphis, or I I lived in Marion, worked in Memphis. And I remember right. that, you know, the morning of that fire and that whole day, it was just, oh, my God. And then the the church fell. Um, it was stone, too, but the firefighters could not get uh, could not get that fire down. Mm-hmm. So, right. uh, and I think it was about this time of year in April. But the the good thing was churches all over Memphis opened their doors to the congregation at the Methodist Church. Well, and that is one thing you can say is definitely not only the church community, but uh, the whole, you know, the whole community in Memphis, I will say this, is always very, it's a lot like I've heard New Orleans described and stuff, it's very... uh, open and you know they're definitely uh giving to each other yes definitely all right well we've got some developments Mm -hmm. once again um it'll be interesting for a week to go by without new developments in some of these cases uh 
She is asking the 4th District Court of Appeal to rehear her appeal for the entire for the full 4th District Court of Appeal to hear her uh-huh. her appeal um on the grounds that the panel who decided the appeal ignored uh major facts and law that she should have won and they're also requesting that the case be certified for review by the Florida Supreme Court based on some claimed dis- uh, um, disparity between the first district and the fourth district court right. of appeal. So if if a uh, if one court of appeal in one region grants relief on the same grounds and the other court of appeal denies relief on the same grounds, then there's a disparity, and they want the Florida Supreme Court to weigh in and decide which appeal appeals court was right. However, I don't think she's going to be successful, especially on the objective entrapment defense or jury instruction that she wanted to give. Because what her objective entrapment jury instruction amounted to was jury nullification. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the state proved about what I did. If you find that the police did these things, although I doubt the, I doubt the jury would have uh, acquitted her or found in her favor on any of the issues she presented. Mm-hmm. I'll put that out there right now, but um and then also the the whole impeachment of Muhammad Shahade. They're claiming okay. there was some kind of stipulation by the prosecutor never, ever, 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 ever to use that poisoning evidence. Because remember, they were allowed to ask Muhammad Shahadi about that when he said, no, I didn't believe she wanted to kill her husband. Right. And what they're calling a stipulation was basically an emotion in limine, which only deals with the state's case in chief. Mm-hmm. It doesn't deal with cross-examination or impeachment. Okay. Um, so it'll be interesting uh, if the 4th District reviews it. Hopefully, they will... Um, you know, make it clear that they don't believe there was a stipulation, that she hasn't proven the existence of a stipulation, and Mm -hmm. that um, the state had every right to use that when Muhammad Shahadeh, who called the police and said, "Uh, this girl I know wants to kill her husband, uh, said he didn't believe that she was serious. Mm -hmm. So... um, and then in Stephen Avery, uh, Kathleen Zellner has filed a reply to the state's response to his latest post-conviction claim dealing with the alleged destruction of evidence because mm-hmm. certain bones were returned to the Halbach family. Right. After Avery's trial, after his appeal had been denied but before the Wisconsin State Supreme Court had denied, uh, declined to hear the case. 
Um, really? Okay. And, of course, they're what? lying and they're hiding things and they're violating the appellate court order. And she's got a lot of bluster, mm-hmm. but not a lot of uh, substance. I think, I, you know, I think she just tries to outdo the word count every time. <laughs> One of those people? So, yeah. Um, so that is still, and it's still going to be in the hands of the judge at the trial circuit court level. Mm-hmm. Um, the judge does have to rule on whether or not to recuse. Mm-hmm. And until that decision is made, I don't know that we're going to get a decision. Although I think the uh, appellate court did set a 60 or 90 day deadline. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we'll have within the next 30 days or so, we'll have some sort of resolution of this latest claim. Right. And then right. if, Zellner isn't successful. She'll go back to the Court of Appeal. And then when her brief is due, she'll have another issue that she needs to bring back to the trial court. Because mm-hmm. that's been her MO for this Avery case. So we will have to see uh, if she actually goes through with the appeal and lets the appellate court resolve the issues that she's already raised and since she likes to put it in terms of winning and losing, that she's lost on. Right. Okay. (laughs) And then finally, in Adnan Syed, uh, his attorney, Justin Brown, has filed a motion for reconsideration with the Maryland Court of Appeal. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was filed on the 8th. Uh, Again, they're basically saying that the um, the Court of Appeal missed some facts and missed some law, and there's uh, opinions out there that you know say you should have ruled in our favor. So uh, I don't know whether the state will even respond or whether the Court of Appeal will just grant or deny it. And there's no time frame on that either. Has that ever worked where they're just like, hey? Because it was ruled this way, you ruled incorrectly. Well, now it it it's it's unusual for it to happen because basically you're Uh telling the appellate court y'all made a mistake and y'all need to make a different decision. It does not work routinely. However, one of the first briefs that I did. In back in the 90s for the plaintiff's uh-huh. attorney that I started working for was right. to the First Circuit Court of Appeal in Louisiana. A uh-huh. summary judgment was granted on behalf of a defendant. We represented the plaintiff. Um, the appeal to the First District Court, the First Circuit was done prior to my coming to work for him. We got the opinion which basically affirmed the summary judgment, saying there were no facts, no genuine issues of material fact, and the defendant was entitled to judgment as a matter of law. Mm-hmm. We got the decision 
we had, I think, 14 days. Uh, I did some research, and with the help of my mom, who taught me a really great trick, I actually found a case on point with the case that we had from the First Circuit that found a genuine issue of material fact mm-hmm. in a a similar case. And so we did the request for rehearing, and the uh, First Circuit Court of Appeal reversed itself and reinstated the case at, and remanded it to the trial court. Oh, nice. So oh, yeah. it, it can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, and it was actually a case that, uh, it had never been brought, it hadn't been argued in the original appeal, but mm-hmm. it, it was a first circuit case that, you know, they're kind of bound by their own law <laughs> or their own decisions. And, um, so when we pointed out that this is the same fact situation, they reversed themselves and they reinstated uh, reverse themselves, reverse the trial court, and remanded the case back to the trial court. Okay. So, um, but it's it's rare. Okay. Cool. So, uh, and sometimes they'll they'll you know supplement their opinion addressing the issue, but saying you're still not entitled to relief. Right. Okay. So we'll we'll have to see in in both Syed and DiPolito how the uh, appellate courts handle those things. Mm-hmm. And I will keep I I will keep an eye on it. Okay, awesome. Well, you always do, honestly. <laughs> You've always been great about updating us on these cases that we've talked about in the past and. You know, uh, especially it'll be fun to see, though, here in the future, what we were talking about, uh, possibly having a little debate on the uh, Avery uh, case on a future episode. Yeah, that'd be good. I, I would enjoy that. And we could we could perhaps do a multi-parter. Mm-hmm. Of course, Absolutely. that's going to be Brad's going to have to free up his busy schedule. Oh, yeah. Totally. <laughs> so hopefully he'll be in a position to do that. And another thing I wanted to – two things I wanted to announce real quick before we move on. Uh, the okay. first one is on May 13th, um, Vicki Edwards and Terry Hobbs have a book out called Box Full of really? Nightmares. Okay. It was just released, uh, I think, earlier uh, in March – Sometime they're going to be coming on the show on on May thirteenth, which is going to be a Monday, to talk about box full of nightmares. Um, Also, programming note for everyone: I have to report for jury pool at Orleans Parish Criminal Court. Okay, now that's just so I am going to move the shows in May to Monday Mm -hmm. night. Because okay. one of my report dates is Tuesday, mm-hmm. and I don't know whether I will be out in time to make it to the show for 8 o'clock. 
So I'm just going to have the show on Monday. Uh, If I get picked for a jury, we'll have to play it by ear. I wonder wonder if this show would disqualify you. It more, it may, it it really, I mean, it's really going to depend. It's going to depend on the questions that the defense asks, the questions the prosecutors Uh ask, the questions the judges ask. I mean, I'll disclose it. No right. doubt about it. So I was like, I wonder maybe if because we host a show like this, I wonder if maybe that would disqualify you from being able to do jury duty. No, it it huh. wouldn't disqualify me as long as I don't come on the show while the case is still pending and mm-hmm. talk about it. In other words, okay. as long as I don't come in, on the show while it's still a trial, because sequestering juries is mm-hmm. really not done quite as much as it may have been done years and years and years ago. Uh, you right. generally are only sequestered while you're in the process of deliberating. But So I couldn't talk about the case while it was on trial, and I more likely than not could not talk about it until after a direct appeal is decided. Mm-hmm. And I can't talk about anything that happens in deliberations. So um, I think being a paralegal would probably not disqualify me, but make me a juror that a criminal defense attorney would not necessarily want. Mm -hmm. Because as a paralegal, I know circumstantial evidence is not inferior, that you do not have to prove... Uh, you know, if the person is on videotape counting out money, you do not have to have their fingerprints on that money. Right. Um, and, you know, whereas, whereas <laughs> defense attorneys like to say the state doesn't have this evidence that they don't really need. And they know you're not going to believe their BS, basically, because you know better. Probably a little bit, yeah. <laughs> so, and then the other the other programming note uh, in May, uh, Michael and I are going to try and get together with a group of people uh, from the Truth Is Justice page on Facebook. Uh, for those of you from the Truth Is Justice page that might be listening, and we're going to have like a roundtable discussion. We're calling it the Court of Public Opinion. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about the things that we see in our discussion of cases over the years. Because some of some of the participants are going to be going back to, you know, West Memphis 3 in the 2011 at the time they were released. Some may go back further. Mm. Like I go back to the 1990s after Paradise Lost. Right. So, okay, awesome. uh, and I think it's going to be really interesting to look at, you know, what what we see in a lot of these documentaries and uh, media articles and things of that nature. Depending on when it is, and you know, I, I believe I actually have the schedule here. I'm going to have to. Uh, I may have to uh, talk to Brad about trying to come on that one as well to add another voice for it. 
That would be interesting. Yeah. That's the one we're going to try to record because we're going to have so many people. Uh, one gentleman is in Australia. One of the ladies is in Mexico, I believe. Another gentleman is in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have a, a lady in uh, the West, Southwest. Mm-hmm. Um, so the time differences and time zones, what we're going to do is find a good time for us to record it. Mm-hmm. Because with the different time zones, it's going to be difficult, especially for the people in Europe or Australia, mm-hmm. to participate live. Absolutely. So um, that's that's going to be it. I, I have the program date for the 21st of May. Okay. Or the okay, 20th yeah, of May. Okay. Um, so okay, that's them. just a programming note. And, uh, of course, I want to also apologize very quickly to everyone. Um, last week's episode, we were supposed to be starting Mumia Bujamal. It's not last week, Monday night. Um, the 18-year-old cat that my sister and I inherited from my father passed away suddenly on Saturday the 6th. And Man, I was I just that. not... I, I was not feeling research or reading or doing anything pretty much that weekend. So um, I am sorry to have left y'all with nothing to listen to last week. And, um, but, you know, I just, I wouldn't have been at my best anyway. Right. We so, all understand. Yeah, we're, we're doing better. He was 18. He had a good life. It was just sudden and quick, mm-hmm. which is both a blessing and a curse. Very true. Wow. All right. So we we are we ready for Mimi Abu Jamal or Wesley Cook? Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Um, and of course. One of the things, I haven't done this, we did a little bit about the 60s uh, when we talked about Charles Manson and maybe a little bit about the 70s in a way. But um, anybody who was born before uh, 1972 remembers that the 1960s and 70s were a time of great social upheaval in the United States. Uh, African Americans were trying to get equal equal treatment, equal rights, voting rights. Um, the uh, war in Vietnam was going on, and people opposed that. Uh, some of that led not to peaceful protests, but there were some groups that felt that uh, they could get what they wanted through destruction and violence and Mm -hmm. civil unrest. And that is a little bit of what happened in this case. Because a promising person who had everything going for him adopted the ways of a group, two groups actually, who felt that they were going to get what they wanted 
through violence and anarchy. Mm-hmm. And um, so that is that kind of sets the stage. And Panthers, which we talked about with Charles Manson, because that was the group that he thought was going to be blamed for the murders that he committed or his followers committed. And then there was going to be a revolution and the Black Panthers were going to come out on top and they weren't going to be able to handle running the world and so he would run it for them. And um, that was basically the most that we talked about. But um, the Black Panthers will come in a little bit later. But the main Mm -hmm. organization was called MOVE. It's not an acronym for anything. It's MOVE, M-O-V-E, all caps. It was founded by by a man by the name of Kenneth Leapart. He was born in Philadelphia and raised in Philadelphia, served in Korea. And then when he came back to the States after getting out of the service, he tried a career in New York, wasn't very successful, came back to Philadelphia, and in 1972, he changed his name to John Africa and founded MOVE. In John Africa's opinion, uh, law, society, was at the root of all evils in the world, and so he wanted a, a society where there were no rules, there were no laws, except the ones made by him. So and um, in a way, they they called themselves a like a back to nature group, and they lived commune style. Um, they would take over property, either a vacant property or a property owned by a family member of a person who had joined them. And then they would live commune style with all the men and women, children, in one residence, one building. Um, the only problem is is that they weren't they weren't very good neighbors. Uh, they're very authoritarian. It's their way or the highway. If you don't agree with them, you don't like what they're doing. You voice any dissent, then you're shouted down. And threatened. And in the case of some neighbors, actually, they get violent. Well, hell, that's not very cool. Uh, yeah. And, um, I, I mean, you know, we, we, we don't see – even the American Revolution was not anarchy for the sake of anarchy. In, during the American Revolution, us, you know, founding fathers – Made a got together and and uh, assembled a congress where they decided on how they would do things and what they would do and where they would go. They appointed a general to you know uh, head the army who was trained by British and they fought using British rules basically. They didn't right. use guerrilla warfare the way you know or ambush warfare or whatever. The way Native Americans did, you know, they they met the British on a line, 
and they had their cannons and the British had their cannons and they fired at each other and engaged and, you know, fought for territory. Um, mm-hmm. They they didn't go destroy, you know, the governor's house and burn it to the ground demanding what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, and, you know, I don't know, aside from the French Revolution, and look at how that turned out, I mean – Within two decades, that had gone kaput, and a lot of the leaders of that ended up on the guillotine themselves. Um, so that kind of anarchy doesn't – it doesn't last. It burns out. Right. And um, like the Black Panthers, MOVE also followed kind of a communist socialist ideal okay and that's not going to go over very well in uh, American society Um, you may have some people who agree but the majority of people are going to say no not for me and so uh, in 19 kind of mid 1970s the move uh, members moved into a house in Powhatan Village in Philadelphia. Um, I don't know Philadelphia well enough to know what part of the city it was. Powhatan Village, though, is generally a little bit more progressive. But even right. that, they're not—they weren't progressive enough for move. Um, huh. Move members. They were animal rights, so they rescued strays and fed them raw meat, and um, that was kind of unpleasant. They they didn't have garbage pickup. They piled trash in the backyard and in the front of the house. And I mean, it, look up Palton Village and read about you know what some of these neighbors experienced while Move was there. And, you know, the the community initially tried to amicably resolve their problems. But Uh Moose's response was always shouting threats because they felt they could do what they wanted to do and screw all of y'all. We don't care. Right. Uh, Which, you know, in in a polite society, generally not a popular attitude Um, and there are a couple of stories as to how the final conflict came about Um, one of the stories is just that the general conditions were a hazardous uh, hazardous to health and the health department of the city of Philadelphia uh, wanted the move to get the move members out The, the property was no longer inhabitable or habitable and, um, of course, who's going to get people out of a property? The police. the police. Right. And so the police, Philadelphia Police Department, come in. And this is another time. This is not the days of kinder, gentler policing. Right. Um, this is the days of do what we say or you're going to be sorry. 
Right. And unfortunately, uh, Move was also of the opinion of do what we say or you're going to be sorry. So it came to two obstinate groups with their own motives and motivations clashing over who's going to leave that house or not. Uh, Uh In this particular instance, the Philadelphia police, there was a a several-week standoff because the MOVE members are out on the porch with guns. And I've got to give the Philadelphia police some credit because they did not open fire the minute those people came out on the porch with guns, even though right. basically they would have had every right to do it if they True. didn't drop the True. guns when they were told to do so. And I, I don't care who you are, where you're from, what your background is. If you have a weapon and a police officer tells you to drop it, and you don't drop it, whatever goes wrong for you is on you, not the police. I completely agree with that statement, but there's a lot of people who probably don't. Maybe it's just me. You know, know, there's only so much cajoling and sweet talking that can be done. Right. You know, move. Another thing with move is they made Mm -hmm. agreements. You know, they made agreement to be out of the Palatine Village house on August 1st, and then August 1st came and went, and they were still there. Right. So, you know, if you're not going to, your word is not your bond. Your word means nothing. It's going to mean even less when you've got people standing out on a porch with automatic weapons. Very true. Um, in a show of force. And I'm sorry, but in the city of Philadelphia, we do not need any type of militia. Thank you very much. Oh, very true. Um, and, you know, a lot of people talk about the corruption in the police department in Philadelphia. Yes, you know, there was corruption. But I think for the most part, the police were actually preying upon the people who were kind of working under the under the radar of the law anyway. You know, they were shaking down club owners who weren't following liquor laws. They were shaking down prostitutes. They were shaking down bookies. Um, it's not right. It's wrong. They shouldn't have been doing it. It should have been happening. But uh-huh. it's they weren't grabbing innocent people off the street and throwing them in prison for decades for no reason. Right. At least not to anything I you know. In fact, the you know people were being were paying for the privilege of not being thrown in prison. Uh-huh. So wrong as it was, it was happening. Um. So. They finally, basically the the mayor or the chief of police, I can't remember if he was chief of police or mayor at the time, Frank Rizzo, he wanted to move out. He was tired of dicking around. And so he Mm -hmm. had the fire department come out, 
and they started flooding the building with fire hoses because that'll get people out of the building. Right. Quickly. And when he started flooding the building with fire hoses, someone in the house opened fire on the police. And the police, of course, returned fire, and there was a a gun battle. Uh, I don't remember. I I was a kid. I was at my grandparents' house because this happened in, I think, August of 1978. I was at my great-grandparents' house. I remember seeing this on the news because they're in Wilmington, Delaware, which is the the market for Philadelphia. And um, I don't know how long it went on, but, I mean, you had reporters doing their stand-ups, and you hear pop, 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 pop in the background. Um, one officer was killed. His name was James Ramp. Um, and the standoff, I think they used tear gas and finally were able to drive everybody out of the building and arrest everyone. Uh, nine members of MOVE were convicted for Ramp's murder under a conspiracy theory, which means even though only one of them fired the fatal bullet, they all participated in the action that led to Ramp's death, which was resisting the police and firing on the police. And so they were convicted and sent to prison in Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, I think they were all... uh, Lengthy sentences. There were no. There was no death penalty case. Um, I think probably because they didn't know which weapon caused Officer Ramp's death. They went with. Uh, I don't know if it was even life sentences. But you know that that philosophy of move and John Africa will come back into play later when we talk about. Uh, Wesley Cook, also known as Miyabu Jamal. Right, right. So, um, and I thought that's a, it's important to talk about Move. And if there's anyone out there who knows more about Move than I could learn in my little bit of research, uh, I would love to hear from you next week when we talk about Miyabu Jamal's trial, um, or. The week after that, we could talk about move in a little bit more depth and someone who's more knowledgeable about them than I am. I mean, I've watched a lot of videos this past couple of weeks, and, I mean, I've seen the the move representatives speaking, and, you know, they sound unhinged, and they're so fixed in their their philosophy and they don't want to hear anything different. And they don't want to engage in debate. If you don't agree with them, they will shout you down. And again, that'll that'll come into play a little bit later. Right. So, um, and now we're going to talk about Officer Daniel J. Faulkner. Okay. Um, he is he's the victim in this case. 
his voice was silenced on December 9th, 1981. But he is a, you know, a, a person who deserves recognition and deserves to be talked about. He was born December 21st, 1955. He was the youngest of a large Irish Catholic family. Uh, his parents were, I think his father's name was Thomas and Mary, and he has several brothers, Patrick, Lawrence, Thomas, Kenneth, Joseph, and one sister, Joanne. In 1960, when Danny was five, his father, uh, who was a railroad or a trolley car, I've seen different occupations for Mr. Faulkner. Uh, he died suddenly of a heart attack, leaving his wife, Mary, as the single mother of seven children. Um, but all of the kids were, even at that young age, responsible. And, in fact, the older siblings helped with the younger siblings while Mary worked several jobs just to support her family. Um, and, of course, I think all the kids ended up working jobs at grocery stores or, you know, wherever they could. Uh, one of Daniel's brothers did become a police officer with Philadelphia PD. Um, I believe it was Patrick, but I'm not positive. Uh, but, unfortunately, he was injured in the line of duty and retired uh, shortly after joining the force. Uh, okay. Danny did well in school, but he he was not satisfied in school. And he felt like there was just something else out there for him to do. And so he left school and joined the Army. Mm-hmm. And after serving several years in the Army, he got an honorable discharge, and he joined the Philadelphia Police Force. Okay. Uh, I believe, if if I recall correctly, he graduated at the top of the class for his okay. academy class. Um, he was uh, he was a big guy, and I think he had a big personality. Everything I've read about him. They called him the social director because he was always arranging parties, get-togethers, you know, playing cards at the house, going to see bands, concerts, you know, just a, a social butterfly. And But he was also very responsible, and if he had a job to do, he was there. He did it. He didn't complain. Um, he took care of his family, and uh, just, you know, straight up and up, you know, straight up and up. He was a good guy. Yeah. yeah, he was a very good, very good guy. Very, very good guy. Um, he met his his future wife, Maureen. They were at the shore in Jersey, and she was standing in line, and she'd apparently been out in the sun that day and was a little sunburned. And Danny was standing behind her, and he commented on her sunburn. 
And she said in several interviews that when she turned around, she looked at him, she was just love at first sight. And I believe uh-huh. uh, I read something from one of his friends shortly after he met Maureen. He decided that was the girl he was going to marry. And this would have been in like 1979. Um, ironically, his birthday is the same date as my sister, my middle sister. And he's born the same year my uncle was born. Um, and so he also participated in fundraising for muscular dystrophy. And that was based on, I believe, a family friend whose child was affected. And he would even leave things with his friends to do a, uh, a fundraising event. For muscular dystrophy, uh-huh. and he, you know, he, I think he, I think he worked the phones for the Jerry Lewis telephones a couple of times. Okay. Based on based on some, you know, based on the different things I read, and um, I, I read so many things. I read Maureen Faulkner and Michael Smirconish, Smirconish's book, uh, Murdered by Mia. Uh, but you know, I mean, he was just he was such a great person and a civic minded person and he wanted to help people um, and he and Maureen dated and they were married in November of 1980 in a small ceremony at Valley Forge okay and um, they started their married life together after a honeymoon in San Francisco and uh, Hawaii, which Danny had probably saved for, which Danny and Marina probably saved for, you know, since they started dating. Um, She also, she worked for a company in in Philadelphia. Uh Um, And so she was working, he was working, but they were just starting their life together. And then November 9th, 1981, um, Maureen was home. She'd been under the weather. And Danny worked the third watch, I think uh, 11 to 7 or midnight to 8. I can't remember what the time of the shift was. Uh, But that's the overnight shift. In the 6th District, which is in a kind of rough neighborhood Uh in Philadelphia. Um, He had been home during the day. He sat and paid some bills. Maureen sat with him, kept him company. They had dinner. He cooked dinner for her. Then he decided he was going to go have a nap before he went to work. And she went upstairs and laid down to have a nap with him. Uh, At 10 o'clock, he got up. He was running a little late, so he dressed in his uniform, and he went to report for duty and uh, started his shift. He had the only call that was really of note that night was 
a seven-year-old who had been sexually assaulted by a friend of the family, a family member, something along those lines. He Mm -hmm. took the victim to Jefferson Hospital, um, and he had been involved in the arrest of the suspect in that case uh, during the night. And he cleared from that call and went back on patrol. Okay. All right. And uh, do you want to go ahead and have a quick break? We can go ahead and do the break. Okay. Yeah, let's let's take a pause and do the break and then um and then come back. Okay. Well ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Claire and Convincing. We're gonna take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after this. For your vaping needs and accessories, then check out the guys at Sub On Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub On Vapors, located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub On Vapors. Vape it like you built it. Philadelphia police tonight are mourning the death of a young police officer shot and killed on a Center City street corner early this morning. 
Performing a police officer's most routine and yet most hazardous task, a car stop. And from across the street, the murder suspect, Mumia Abu Jamal, came running and opened fire on the officer. The officer then turned around, he fired one shot and wept his chest.
All right, and we're back. Yes, ma'am. That is one powerful song, yeah. Um, And give credit, Danny Boy, uh, I picked that one, but I used Harry Connick's version Mm -hmm. because he's hometown boy. Uh, (laughs) And Gary Sharon, who wrote The Murder of Daniel Faulkner, uh, the song was used in a documentary by T. Gray Hill. He's from Philadelphia uh, about the Mamiya Abu-Jamal Daniel Faulkner murder case. And that film is called Barrel of a Gun. And if you're interested in watching it and seeing it, you can send an email. They have a Facebook page as well. But you can send an email to barrel of a gun film at gmail dot com, and Mr. Hill will send you a link, and you make a ten dollar donation for the film. Uh, it was released in twenty ten. I watched it. It's a great film. It's very powerful. Um, shows you a lot of the the background with Move and. Mamiya um, Abu-Jamal, which led to the events of of uh, December 9, 1981. So anybody interested in that, uh, it's it's both sides of the story. It really is, because he talks to both prosecution and uh, Jamal's defense. Right. Defenders, right. advocates. So, um, and if you're interested or send me a tweet on Twitter or send us a note on Facebook and we'll get you lined up to see it because it is a, it's a very powerful documentary and I've watched a lot of the documentaries about this case on YouTube and that one is the most powerful of all the ones that I've watched. Absolutely. So, but, uh, all right, so we're, we're back. And we're going to talk about Wesley Cook, mm-hmm. uh, who became known as Mumia Abu-Jamal. Um, a lot of his, of course, if you do a search on his name on, on Google, you'll find a lot of mythologized information about him. Uh, but there are some things and actually some ironic parallels between him and his victim. Uh, they were both raised by single mothers from a young, uh-huh. from a fairly young age. Uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal was born April 24th, 1954, in Philadelphia. Uh, his mom was Edith Cook. Uh, I don't know his father's name. The father listed in an obituary for his sister was a man by the name of Hubert Crump. I believe. Right. But I couldn't find anything that, you know, that definitely identified that gentleman as also being uh, Wesley's father. So that may have been his father. Uh, Mia Abu Jamal talks about him, but doesn't name him in an interview. And then there's also, uh, I found some sources that said that the father left the family when 
Wesley was about nine years old, and I found other sources that said he died. So I'm not sure which is accurate. Um, okay. Wesley was a twin. He had a twin brother named Wayne, or has a twin brother named Wayne. And then he has a brother, William, a brother, Keith, a sister, Lydia. There may be another sister, but I could not find a name. Um, Uh I seem to recall seeing something about a a second sister. Um, But, again, I I couldn't locate any documentation that identified her by name, so... Uh, but he was from, you know, a single mother, family, several children. Uh, his mother, Edith Cook, was from the South, and she was among the uh, African American uh, African Americans who migrated north after World War II okay. and settled in New York, Philadelphia. Uh, so it's kind of funny that. Um, you know, he was born in Philadelphia. He's a Yankee through and through, but his mama was from the South. Right, right. Um, he became involved in political activism very early, uh, according to some of the sources. It started at a protest at a George Wallace rally. Um, there was apparently now- a clash with police. One thing I want to ask real quick and just interject in my thoughts mm-hmm. here with you mentioning that his mom was sure. from the South. Do you think that some of her experiences that maybe she told him about as a child may have uh, led him down this path? Uh, you know, well, some of the things I mean, she experienced in the South. During his formative years, African Americans were struggling for equality. They were mm-hmm. struggling for the right to vote. They were struggling for equality for jobs, uh, for equality and in, in to live. You know, th- th- it was a struggle. And there were two, basically two sides. There was the right. peaceful protest of Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. And then there was a more radical, militant style of the Black Panthers, Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam, and those groups who felt that they were going to get equality. The only way they would get it is if they took it. Whereas Martin Luther King wanted to change the hearts and minds of those in power to affect change. Right. Um, so, you know, that's, and, and, you know, I can understand, I, I can understand to a degree, I can understand the feelings that they had of, you know, having to fight and struggle for everything and not, you know, not succeeding to gain what they should have in a free country. Mm-hmm. I can't relate to it because 
unfortunately, you know, I have never, I've never had that. But I, I don't think that violence and picking up a gun and killing anybody you don't agree with or who you perceive as being oppressive to your wants and desires to be the way to go about affecting the change. Right. It makes no sense. Um, and it, it basically leads you into conflict with the groups that already, you know, you claim are continuing to oppress you as, uh, as severely as, your ancestors who were brought over here against their will during the slave trade uh-huh. were treated because you know they they the Black Panthers formed allegedly to police the police because there was a lot of conflict among the police and the black communities. Um, but uh, you know again, and the Black Panthers actually did try to do a lot of good social things within their communities. There were, you know, school programs so that, that low-income kids had food. They had a place to go eat breakfast in the morning. They had subsidies for their lunches um, to be able to eat lunch in school and, you know, to, to try and get... But, but a, lot of the, a lot of the times, I think... A lot of that was grooming them to then eventually become members of the Black Panther Party, mm-hmm. and then take up arms in the struggle. Uh, and you know, you got a a lot of a lot of the more radicalized groups like the Black Panthers. They called Martin Luther King some pretty awful names. They didn't approve of how he was going about things. Right. They didn't approve of peaceful protest. But, you know, when you look at it through the lens of looking at it historically, Martin Luther King's way did work. Right. Um, Over time. You know, now there's still struggle, but it's not, it's certainly not the struggle that your, you know, your great-grandparents had during the 20s or the 30s or the 40s or 50s. Um, So, you know, things have changed. They can continue to change. I think evolution is more stable than revolution. Very true. I, I, I think that's something that, that we, you know, we, if you look at history, the fast, drastic changes don't last. And things generally go back to status quo. Right. You know, uh, like I might you know, my example of the French Revolution got rid of the monarchy, got rid of the ruling class, the nobility in France, and within 20 years, first they had Napoleon, who came in and became 
emperor, which is just as bad as king, who doesn't care about the people. And then they brought the monarchy back, and and then they became a true republic, and have remained a true republic, or have remained a true republic republic since. But uh, you know, for a while, they went back to monarchy. There was it was constitutional, but it was still monarchy. Hmm. Right. And um, you know, look at England. I mean, you know that. That was a revolution in the 1640s, uh, which resulted in Charles I being beheaded. Oliver Cromwell became the protector. But, I mean, he was, for all intents and purposes, king. And then when he died and his son wasn't up to taking his, you know, taking on that role... They invited Charles II back, and, and then they fashioned a constitutional monarchy. Parliament uh-huh. ruled uh, with advice and, and uh, approval from the monarch. True. So, but uh, and even our, our American Revolution started in the 1770s and, and wasn't completed until 1789 when our constitution was ratified. So it was, it was not, it was more, more akin to evolution than revolution. Hmm. So, but, um, Anyway, so uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal started with political activism, uh, and, and it was probably based upon the things that he was seeing in his community. Uh, there were issues with police and uh, issues at the rally where he was exercising his right to free speech, although, you know, if you exercise your right to free speech and somewhere along the line that extends to exercising your perceived right to throw a bottle at a cop, um, it's not going to end well for you. Right. I mean, because that's what a lot of, you know, a lot of protesters, they're protesting, and as long as you're using your mouth, you're okay. But when when it escalates to throwing things at police or even getting in a cop's face and basically, you know, saying things that you would not be very happy if someone said the same thing to you, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you're kind of pushing your luck. Yeah. I don't know. And I don't know what happened with the Wallace rally. I'm, but I've seen enough protests go haywire during that era on, you know, different film, uh, to know that sometimes, and it's not necessarily he didn't have to do it. Somebody did it, and once somebody does it, it's kind of like you know we're gonna take everybody in and let a judge sort them out. Okay. Um, but you know when when something when something is thrown, you're no longer peacefully protesting. Yeah. No. Uh, so. 
Uh, another irony in this case is Wesley Cook went to Benjamin Franklin High School. And my okay. high school name was Benjamin Franklin. Mine was Benjamin Franklin Senior High School, though. Okay. It was so long ago, I don't quite remember. But uh, <laughs> he dropped out, and uh, I think he was about 15, and he joined the Black Panther Party. And went out to Oakland, California, met Huey Newton, the founders, uh, and I think Carlos Seal, founders of the Black Panther Party, uh, came back to Philadelphia, started his own chap in the party, and became a minister of information. Uh, the Black Panthers also followed Mao Zedong's Little Red Book. That was required reading for all Black Panthers. Communism, Mm -hmm. big time communism. And they were very impressed with uh, Mao Zedong's cultural revolution. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, you know, you just, you're not going to get that same fervent from American, no matter how downtrodden they may be that you would get in China. Right. So, uh, but that, you know, that's another, another country that basically they had ruling emperors and Mm -hmm. imperial officials at the top of the food chain. And then that was, Rejected in the late, I think, 19 teens, I think between 1917, 18, 19, somewhere around there, there was a military coup. And then that person, and it's always one person who rises to the top of the food chain, and while not emperor in name, he's an emperor in all but name. Right, right. And then trickling down his officials and then the people, generally the majority of the population ends up on the short end of the stick or with the short end of the stick. Mm-hmm. And so Mao Zedong, China was ready for another change after right. World War Two. Um, so he came in, and, and we see China is no longer – they still have a communist party. They are still communist, but they are now seeing capitalism ain't so bad. Right. The leaders of the party probably live better uh, than the average citizen. Yep. Probably. So, you know, I mean, every form of government has its flaws. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And those who don't recognize the flaws or the potential flaws, uh, but who think, you know, single party, one party, redistribution of wealth, mm, you know, that's not... 
A, it's not going to work in America. We are two-party all the way. Mm-hmm. And always have been. Right. I agree. Um, and any, anything that doesn't allow for debate and dissent is not a good system. But enough political talk. <laughs> so, um, and one of the things I, I will will hear about it later on uh, when we talk more about the post conviction. But um, there was a program back in the sixties, fifties, sixties, and seventies. It was run by the FBI, and it was called CoIntel Pro. And um, basically, it was J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. Okay. He saw subversives, subversives everywhere. And apparently, there was no national security agency at the time. So Hoover, as the federal law enforcement, head of federal law enforcement, uh, took it upon himself to keep an eye on anyone he felt or believed might be fomenting revolution or anarchy or death and destruction on the American people. Um, there's a lot of a lot of uh, complaints from Mumia Abu Jamal's advocates saying he was COINTELPRO was keeping an eye on him at the age of 15. How unfair! How horrible! Uh, this is, you know, also cited as evidence of why he would be framed for Daniel Faulkner's murder. Right. So just to clear the air a little bit, COINTELPRO, these are the groups and people that COINTELPRO was keeping an eye on in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. The Communist Party USA anti-Vietnam War organizers, civil rights organizers, black power organizers, Martin Luther King, Nathan of Islam, and Black Panther Party among them, environmentalists and animal rights organizations, feminist organizations, American Indian movement, independence movements such as Puerto Rican independence groups, uh, and a variety of of organizations that were part of the new left. The program also targeted the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. Their their methods involved the illegal wiretaps. Uh, there was also some uh, basically kind of uh, fomenting infighting among members of the groups or or infiltrating the groups and then getting them to have beef with another group. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, I, you know, they weren't they weren't focused on Mamiya Abu Jamal, and they were only focused on Mamiya Abu Jamal because of his membership in the Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm. And with any of this, what they were doing was they were keeping an eye on them. They knew what they were up to. They knew what they were talking about. They knew what they were planning on doing so that in the event that they 
were planning to commit some sort of crime, such as bank robbery, the FBI would be on top of them. Mm-hmm. Hoover was a very proactive, um, and you know he was he was the he was the head of the FBI during the Great Depression, when Dillinger and Machine Gun Kelly and all these other people were wreaking havoc around the United States, robbing banks and killing people and hurting people. Um, so you know he perceived that to be his job, right or wrong. I don't know. Um, but he thought what he was doing was right at the time. Uh, so, you know, Mumia Abu-Jamal was not being unfairly targeted for no reason. He was being watched because he was a member of a group that was deemed to be radical, militant, and subversive. Right. And potentially a problem down the line for law-abiding citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the Black Panther Party was involved in the death of police officers in other jurisdictions. Huey Newton actually killed a police officer in Alameda County, California, and ended up being, sent, uh, being convicted of manslaughter. And after he'd served his time and then been released, he actually admitted to a journalist that he had committed murder, essentially. Um, so, and you know, you can you can call it self-defense, but um, it was murder, right? So, uh, and then the Black Panther Party kind of fell apart. Uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, I think some of the bad press from Manson probably didn't do him much good. Um, and a lot of their leaders had either been imprisoned or or, or killed in uh, police raids that resulted in uh, their deaths. So um, that was pretty much the Black Panther Party kind of faded into the background. Mm-hmm. And some of their ideals are still around today with some groups. Um, right. But uh, generally, I think they're pretty quiet. And, you know, it's kind of funny. They'll, they'll say it in a, they'll say it in a sympathetic forum, but, if they're in a more mainstream venue, they will deny. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at some point after the Black Panther Party fell apart, uh, Wesley Cook became acquainted with John Africa. And uh, so then he became affiliated with MOVE, although he was never officially a member. Uh, He adopted the hairstyle, which was the dreadlocks, uh, and he began uh, living his life by the tenets set forth by John Africa. So uh, he had 
he's had three marriages. His first was Biba, who is the mother of his son, Jamal. Uh, and I believe daughter Latifah. And then he married a lady by the name of Marilyn, who was called Peachy, in 1977. They divorced. And I believe she is the mother of his son, Mozzie. And he's currently married to a woman, Wadia. Um, And they are still married. I don't know that they had any children. Uh, he married Wadia shortly before Faulkner's murder, and so I don't know that they had they ever had any children. Um, he did show early promise in his journalism career. Uh, he was, you know, he was known as the voice of the voiceless, mm-hmm. and he wrote about social issues and, of course, you know, social activism, but. His social activism was more radical and um, uh, provocative than peaceful protest and effecting change through changing hearts and minds. Um, he was he wrote for Black Panther magazines and newspapers. And then he was also a radio commentator. He was, I think, on NPR uh, for uh-huh. the PBS affiliate in Philadelphia um, and worked for several different stations. But as he became more and more entrenched with MOVE and the ideals of MOVE, especially after the Palton Village conflict and the conviction of the move nine he uh, was found to be to lack objectivity it became everything became about the police and about move and about how corrupt the police were and how unfair and um, if you know some of his co-workers have commented that you know he just didn't want to listen he didn't want to hear anything anybody else believed or felt or or thought or had to say. He just wanted what, you know, what he thought to be the only way. And that led to uh, problems with his employers who did not want every episode of his radio show to be about the injustice suffered by the Move 9. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, and I think a lot of Move, Move's reputation in Philadelphia was not. They had some sympathetic people, but the majority of people were not very sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And so uh, his career ended about a year, sometime in the late 1980s. Not you know late 1980 around there and so he had to start driving a cab to mm-hmm. earn a living and on December 9th 1981 uh, he claimed to have had a fare that he dropped off 
uh, around Locust Street. He was in a parking lot on Locust in between 12th and 13th Streets. And um, that is how he came to be at the scene of Daniel Faulkner's murder. Okay. Um, not a lot of, you know, not a lot of, not a lot of information about what he did that day. Um, but I think, uh, we'll never know. So, uh, or, or, or someone will hear this program and there will be some new myths about rescuing babies and, you know, bringing food to the elderly and infirm and, you know, spending the day running around doing all these civic, uh, civic duties. But, uh, then William Cook is Wesley's younger brother. Um, if you look, I, I saw on one of the videos, um, they look a lot alike because apparently Wesley at least, and perhaps Wayne, when, I mean, William and Wayne, when Wesley adopted the dreadlocks, so did they. Right. And wearing, the men wearing the beard. Um, And, you know, another thing about Move, I want to say, it's an authoritarian cult. John Africa was the leader. He made the rules. You did what he said. You thought how he thought. No individuality, a lot like Charles Manson. You know, you right. tow the party line. Leader, et cetera. Right. And um, so William Cook, he was a street vendor, uh, probably did a little bit of drug dealing. Uh, there was a story uh, that I could not corroborate that uh, Daniel Faulkner had actually encountered William Cook selling drugs in that area, but it lost him in a foot chase. Mm-hmm. And that's what led to the events of December 9th. But I couldn't corroborate that in any of the official records or testimony or documents, so that is just a speculative theory Uh that there was some prior interaction between William Cook and Daniel Faulkner. Okay. Um, And and we'll we'll get into that a little bit more um, when we talk about Daniel Faulkner's murder. Um, The facts that we know, and there are actually – Uh, There are a few things that we're very lucky that we have. The first is that um, we have police who were able to arrive at the scene within about 70 seconds. Mm -hmm. Between the shooting and you know, within 70 seconds of Daniel Faulkner being shot. So police were on the scene almost instantaneously. There wasn't any delay. Um, 
probably because uh, Daniel Faulkner at about 3.50, 3.51 in the morning on December the 9th, it was very cold. He was out in at the third, uh, Locust Street. He observed a Volkswagen Beetle with wooden bumpers on the front and back, which is not regulation, um, on 12th Street. There are some accounts that say the the VW was traveling the wrong way on 12th Mm -hmm. Street. There are some other sources that say we don't actually know why he pulled over the vehicle, although I would hazard a guess if the VW wasn't traveling the wrong way as the majority of the sources say it was, those wooden bumpers – and a license plate hanging off the back. Right. Those are equipment violations at that yeah, time of the morning. An equipment violation is probably going to lead to something a little bit more because the only people out at that time of the morning are criminals and cops. Right, up to no good. For the most part. Yeah. So um, he observed the vehicle. Some say traveling the wrong way on 12th Street. The vehicle turned onto Locust. Faulkner turned on the Locust behind it and pulled him over. The vehicle was being driven by William Cook. Um, his brother Wesley, also known as Mamiya Abu-Jamal, he got the name, he claims he got the name Mamiya when he was in high school. And he changed his name his last name to Abu Jamal, which means father of Jamal in honor of his son. But I don't know if that's, you know, I don't know how true that is because a lot of his past is mythologized. Okay. Um, But anyway, I, I, sorry, I went off on a tangent because I forgot to say that earlier. (laughs) So it's kind of a couple of people, Michael Smirkomish and a couple of other people, and I kind of agree, this could have been a setup from the beginning. Because for Mumia Abu Jamal to be in that parking lot on Locust Street at that time of day, at night, at the same time his brother's getting pulled over in that exact location. Right. Is a little bit too coincidental Odd. for me, right? And for them, the the those who have thought. Now, it's not something anyone can prove, but it does seem a bit coincidental, especially the fact that Abu Jamal was carrying a gun. Of course, he claims he was carrying it for his own safety. Because he'd been robbed, um, but that he had the gun, and that the you know what went down. Basically, after the VW was pulled over, Faulkner called in the traffic stop, and the dispatcher says he's going to send backup. And mm-hmm. apparently, William Cook got out of the Volkswagen, which is when you're a police officer is never a good sign. Oh, right. 
so then Faulkner called for a wagon because he was going to arrest Cook. And that's another thing that kind of leads me to think perhaps he did have an earlier encounter with Cook because he knew he was going to arrest him. Um, but anyway, the um, Faulkner went over to the vehicle, and there was a brief discussion. Cook was very belligerent and aggressive, and then Cook struck Faulkner in the face, and Faulkner struck back and then tried to restrain Cook to place him under arrest. While this is happening, Wesley Cook... Mamiya Abu Jamal gets out of his cab, runs across the street with a 38 caliber pistol, and mm-hmm. runs up behind Officer Faulkner and shoots him in the back. Officer Faulkner turns and he's able to pull his service weapon and fire one shot. There's a dispute. I think as he was going down, because the shot to the back was not, it wasn't good, but it wasn't, uh, it didn't cause him to lose consciousness. It didn't involve the spinal cord. It was high on the back, and there was an exit wound on the neck. Okay. And so it, it wasn't, it didn't sever his spinal cord that would cause him to drop immediately. So I think he had, with adrenaline, because he was involved in the struggle with, with William Cook, the adrenaline, he may not even realize he'd been shot. And so he was able to pull his weapon and fire off a shot, and he struck Jamal either chest, stomach, somewhere in the abdominal area. Right. Um, There are different sources. Some sources say stomach, some sources say chest. Um, And then Faulkner went down, Officer Faulkner went down. So probably right. the the you know adrenaline wore off and he went down. He was on his back. And the adrenaline may have honestly made it worse as far as the bleeding goes. Correct? Heartbeat speeding up, pumping. Yeah, blood, I think it pump. it it can make it worse. Although they don't say anything, I don't think the neck wound was from what I could could infer from the different sources that I read the wound in the back and the neck wound if that was all that he that had happened he would have mm-hmm. survived probably okay. um the chances are pretty good especially given that you know his his backup arrived within 2 minutes mm-hmm. of the first pulling over the call of pulling over uh William Cook uh, 70 seconds after the gunshot. Um, Mumia Abu-Jamal stood over Officer Faulkner. He had a five-shot pistol, and he fired four more shots down at Officer Faulkner. One of those shots struck Officer Faulkner in face, in the forehead, and instantly killed him. Mm. Um, so then Abu Jamal dropped his pistol and he ended up going 
10 steps, 12 steps, couple feet at most, and then he dropped down onto the curb mm-hmm. near the Volkswagen. So he was within feet of Officer Faulkner after shooting him. Billy, ironically, I, I don't know that Billy is really that smart. He did not run. He did not yeah. say, uh-huh, I'm get the fuck out of here. He stayed right. standing there. I think he ended up going and putting himself on the wall with his hands up. Although, I guess he didn't have time to really, if he tried to run, it probably would not have ended well for him. But uh, he was there, so he was found, hands on the wall, apparently. Um, the officers arrived, they found Mumia Abu-Jamal on the ground. Uh, an officer approached him, identified himself as a police officer, and Mumia Abu-Jamal's left hand began reaching for the empty pistol. which the officer kicked out of his reach, and they got control of him. Um, He was picked up off the ground. Officer Faulkner was put into a car or wagon and rushed to Jefferson Hospital. Abu Jamal was put into a uh, police wagon. One of the eyewitnesses, because there were four eyewitnesses, Mm-hmm. who came forward immediately or were found at the scene immediately. Um, right. And they had all seen all or part of what had happened. Um, so one of those witnesses, Robert Schaubert, was brought to the wagon, and he positively identified Mumia Abu-Jamal as the person who shot Officer Faulkner. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently in the wagon... Uh, an inspector who had arrived at the scene asked Abu Jamal where his gun was. And as I recall, Abu Jamal's response was, I dropped it on the ground. Not, what gun? I didn't have a gun. I don't know what you're talking about. And then later at Jefferson Hospital, he was heard as they were bringing him into the hospital in the entryway, as they were coming in the doors, he was struggling with police. He struggled with police on Locust Street while they tried to arrest him. He's struggling with police as they're bringing him into the hospital for treatment. And at some point, he uttered the words, yeah, I shot the motherfucker and I hope he dies. And then apparently a second time later when they were getting ready to bring him into a treatment room, he made the same statement a second time. Um, Wow. Plus he does. I I mean, you know, he's found at the scene. It's his his pistol. It's registered Mm -hmm. in his name. He bought it two years before. It's right there at the scene. He can't deny that it's his gun. Got five spent 
shell casings in it because it's a revolver. It's not an automatic. So all the shell casings are right there in the, in the, what do you call the, the wheel on the revolver? I know it's a magazine on a, on an automatic, but what do you uh, call the oh dear Lord. chamber? No. Yeah. No? Chamber? No. I, I don't know. Chamber. I, you have to I ask me and Any, I'll blank it. Okay. Well, I, I I hope it keeps you up all night. <laughs> Honestly, I'm probably going to wake up out of a dead sleep and go, oh, my God, that's what it was. And then I'll message you on Facebook. Okay. Just the way yeah, perfect. Message me on Facebook, and tomorrow morning when I get up, I'll look at it. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, so anyway, so that's uh, the investigation. There's not really a lot of investigation. Uh-huh. I'm, I mean, I'm sure they had to do, you know, they perhaps did want to do some investigation maybe to try and figure out why he would do this. Um, right. But they didn't have to do a lot of investigation because, lo and behold, you know, they have, it's not a whodunit. Right. Uh, plus there were the eyewitnesses. There was Robert Schaubert, or Chaubert, I don't know how to pronounce his name, and I'm from Louisiana, so it looks like a French name. I'm going to say Schaubert. Um, right. He, he, uh, he was in a cab parked on Locust behind the VW and the police car. He observed Mumia Jamal running across the street... He was honest when he testified at trial. He never observed a gun in Abu Jamal's hand, but he saw the hand pointed and he heard a pop. So you can infer that as a gunshot. Um, So he saw Abu Jamal shooting Officer Faulkner in the back, and then he was blocked by the vehicles, but he saw Abu Jamal standing over Officer Faulkner and firing down at him. Okay. And then there was a gentleman by the name of Michael Scanlon, and he was also in the area. I think he was passing. I had a map with the initials, and I don't know where that is now. Uh, He was passing on Locust Street, and he saw most of the uh, shooting, and then he continued on to 12th Street where he encountered one of the wagons that was coming to the scene, and he advised those officers that there had been a police officer shot. Okay. And then there was a woman by the name of Cynthia Williams, she was a prostitute. She was working Locust Street that time of the night. There was there were several clubs in that area and a couple mm-hmm. probably motel motels type places. Right. Um, she was on the corner, and she saw everything. She saw Mumia Abu-Jamal get out of the cab, running across the street, right. holding a gun, shooting Officer Faulkner, standing over him and shooting him. Uh, as I recall, she saw Faulkner shooting Mumia Abu-Jamal. 
And um, no doubt in her mind. Um, and then another gentleman by the name of Albert Magleton, who was standing on Locust Crossing the street. He saw part of it, but when he heard the gunshots, he... Um, or no, he actually... He had to run to to avoid being hit by a car, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. So he heard, saw parts of of it. So there's four eyewitnesses who saw substantial parts, and at least two who saw Mumia Abu Jamal running across the street to shoot Officer Faulkner. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so. Um, again, and then as far as his admissions, um, Gary Bell, who was a fellow officer with, with Officer Faulkner, uh, he heard Mumia Abu-Jamal's statement the first time, and he responded, if he dies, you die. Right. And then Priscilla Durham was a security guard at Jefferson Hospital she also heard Abu Jamal's two admissions and gave test and testified at the trial when and where they occurred Um, she also the next day she made a report about the statement to the security department at Jefferson Hospital Okay. Okay. Um, so uh, there were there were some issues, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in depth when we talk about the trial. Uh, Gary uh-huh. Bell and uh, another police officer they were accused of making up the statement because they didn't report it immediately. Um. Both of them testified at – one of them, test, Gary Bell, testified at trial. The second officer didn't testify at trial, but we'll get, we'll get into that when we come to the trial. Uh, but Gary right. Bell testified at trial, and he basically testified that he was in shock. Whenever he gave his prior statements and didn't mention the uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal statements or his own, because basically his response to Mumia Abu-Jamal is, if he dies, you die. Okay. Um, and uh, but he, you know, his statement was corroborated by Priscilla Durham, and she corroborated her own statement by reporting it to the supervisors in the hospital security department the following day, and that report was admitted at trial. So um, that's you know that's where we stand again. There wasn't a lot of um, – there were a couple of other witnesses during the investigation, uh, but they weren't really major witnesses. Um, they did do ballistics. The slug from Officer Faulkner uh, from the – the back wound was through and through. Mm-hmm. But the slug that was recovered in his autopsy was very mangled. 
but they were able to uh, determine that it was consistent with a 38 caliber of the type of ammunition that was in Mumia Abu-Jamal's gun when it was recovered. Uh-huh. And the uh, the markings on the bullet fragment characteristics consistent with the make model revolver that Mumia Abu-Jamal owned. Um, okay. They did not do gunshot residue tests on anybody's hands. Mm-hmm. And one of the criticisms is it's an easy test. It could have been done. Well, in 1981, a paraffin test, which is what all of Mumia Abu-Jamal's attorneys claim should have been done, was actually done by dipping hands in wax. Okay. And that is not equipment carried by your average officer on the street. Mm-hmm. It is generally something that's done by a crime lab, which would require bagging hands until somebody from the crime lab could go and perform the testing at a hospital or at a morgue or wherever. So the officers on the street could not have done any kind of gunshot residue testing. They did not carry wax and warmers and things, anything that would be required. There are a couple other tests that involve swabbing the hands, but you have to have a reagent solution. And then you Mm -hmm. swab, you know, the web of the palm. I mean, the web between the thumb and four fingers in between the fingers. and um, But that, again, it's, you have a reagent that you put on the swab, and then you swab the hand. Um, again, that's generally something a crime lab does. So it requires bagging of the hands of suspect mm-hmm. and or victim until crime lab can go and do something. Additionally, I have found... FBI basically saying studies have been done since the 1940s that have found gunshot residue testing to be not reliable. You can have false negatives and you can have false positives. Mm-hmm. So it's not definitive. If you get a positive, it's not definitive or proof in and of, of itself that a person actually fired a gun. They could have been just around when a gun was fired. Um, There was also mention of an FBI study done prior to John Kennedy's assassination in 1963 that this type of testing is not 100% reliable. Can't really say definitively that a person fired a gun based on the results of testing because in controlled studies done, people who fired guns had no gunshot residue found. And people right. who hadn't fired guns had gunshot residue found. Because this will, nitrates are a part of gunpowder or are a byproduct of firing a gunpowder, firing gunpowder. But you find nitrates in fertilizer. True. In charcoal. 
you know, and, and there are several different applications where you find a form of nitrate that you will find in, you know, that you will find in these tests. So um, that wasn't done. The ballistics, they couldn't conclusively identify uh, the bullet from Officer Faulkner. However, they did conclusively identify the bullet from Mia Abu Jamal as coming from Faulkner's gun, which was recovered at the scene. Right. Um, but they could they could say that it was consistent with a thirty eight. It was consistent with the model based on the uh, markings, lands and grooves, rifling that they could observe on what was left of the slug. Um, And that it was consistent with the type of ammunition that was present in the weapon when it was recovered, the type of ammunition, casings, because the casings identify maker, make and model of ammunition. So, but we'll talk a little bit more about the, uh, the testimony as far as ballistics and witnesses and things like that next week when we talk about the trial. Okay. And direct appeal. Okay. Sounds good. So do you have any questions, anything to add? I mean, it seems like... I mean, honestly, it seems like a situation where a guy just wants to – a guy has a preconceived notion and he thinks he's going to get away with something that he obviously did because he's going to scream racism. So, I mean, not really. It's pretty cut cut and dry for me. (laughs) But, I mean, it is what it is. You you hit the nail on the head because that is exactly – not not only is he going to scream it, he's going to continue screaming it. Right. He's still screaming it to this day. And I'm sure and, because uh, of the climate we have today that some people automatically believe it without knowing everything and things like that. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think I, I'm just going to go on the record saying I don't care what race or ethnicity you are. Advocating violence is never right. Um, And also that you can be a minority and still be a racist. If you hate another ethnic or racial group because of history, the color of their skin, where they come from, you are racist, even if you are a member of a minority group. I mean, when people tried to pull that with George Zimmerman, he's Hispanic, he can't be racist. Yes, he can. Yeah. I mean, you know, he can. Whether it's his whether it's his white half or his Hispanic half. If he doesn't like I mean, black Zimmerman, people, he's a racist. Zimmerman got left. 
let's be honest there. Zimmerman got very lucky. He got into some shit oh. he should have never stopped for, but I think any other state his attorney would not have been able to get away with all the crap. Of course, I've said it before, I think Benjamin Crump didn't do the right thing by speaking with witnesses because it led to Mark O'Mara being able to uh, imply that he had interfered with those witnesses and told those witnesses what to say to get Zimmerman right. convicted. Even if he couldn't do it in the courtroom, he did it in the court of public opinion. Very true. Very true. And um, so, but, uh, you know, I've always said, I don't think Zimmerman's second jury is going to believe self-defense. No. I agree with that. It's another situation where he got off the first time. He thought he was untouchable, and sure enough. All right. I mean, you know, I've said it before. I'll say it again. He got out of that truck. He deserved to get his ass whooped. Oh, absolutely. I would have whooped his ass if he was following me around. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and I think he got out of that truck carrying the gun. If he hadn't had that gun, he wouldn't have had the balls to get out of his truck. Oh, absolutely not. He's one of those people. Guaranteed. So, um, and I hear he likes to go around threatening people. I wouldn't surprise me. Come to to my house, George. You and I can have a little talk. Right. Because he likes to beat up women, too. I'll cure him of that problem. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, a lot of people thought that I would think he was innocent for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know. But it's very simple. He never should have gotten out of the truck. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely. He should have called 911, let them come talk to Trayvon Martin, and all this stuff about, well, why didn't Trayvon Martin go home? Because he had a younger sibling, younger half-sibling, younger step-sibling at the house. Parents weren't home. He doesn't want to bring Herbert the pervert, because for all he knows, that's what George Zimmerman was doing. Right. He doesn't want to bring that home. So he's trying to, you know, he's trying to lose him. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, I think we've we've said enough for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Put a bow on her. Okay. You ready? Okay, because I always I start and then you say something and I have to start all over again. I'll be good. Okay, I'm starting. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook, 
go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Join us next week on Tuesday, April 23rd, 2019, two of Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Mumia Abu-Jamal. We'll talk about Abu-Jamal's 1982 trial and his direct appeal of his conviction and sentence. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.